Making Waves. So let's go right now to Making Waves here on your community radio station, Radio Catskill. Tonight on Making Waves, we bring you a special edition in which we devote the entire Making Waves Hour to a single subject. One month ago, the State University of New Paltz Distinguished Speaker Series presented Truth, Trust, and the Future of Journalism, an evening with Arthur Ox Salzberger, Jr., Chairman of the New York Times Company, in conversation with James H. Ottaway, Jr., retired Senior Vice President of Dow Jones, former Chairman of Ottaway Newspapers, which is the publisher of the Hudson Valley Daily Newspaper, the Times-Herald Record. Not only does the talk give a sense of how much the world has changed in just one month, it also gives insight into how the New York Times is able to cover the coronavirus pandemic with the vigor it has brought to its reporting in an era of shrinking news. Well, good evening, and welcome to the SUNY New Paltz Spring Distinguished Speaker Series. The series is made possible by the SUNY New Paltz Foundation, and through your generous support, you are enriching the experiences of SUNY New Paltz students in our community. Thank you so very, very much. And without further ado, please join me in a warm SUNY New Paltz welcome for President Donald Christian. Thank you, Lisa. Good evening, everyone. What a great turnout. I'm pleased to see all of you here. I want to welcome you to the SUNY New Pulse Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, tonight's speaker is Arthur o. o. Salzberger, Jr., uh, chairman of the New York Times Company, in conversation with James H. Ottaway, Jr. James, or Jim, as I'll refer to him uh, for the rest of the evening, is retired director and senior vice president of Dow Jones and Company uh, and former chairman and chief executive officer of Ottaway Newspapers. Their talk this evening is titled Truth, Trust, in the Future of Journalism. I want to welcome Arthur and Jim both. Thank you both for being here this evening. We're honored and thrilled to have both of these uh, distinguished journalists uh, here with us for this timely event. And we look forward to an enlightening conversation between two accomplished journalists uh, business leaders, and SUNY New Paltz honorary alumni. Here's kind of the run of show for the evening. I'll, I'll introduce uh, our speakers shortly, and then Arthur will address uh, some of the most significant challenges that reporters and news outlets face today. Uh, following his talk, uh, Arthur will uh, respond to questions from Jim on select topics, uh, including the best and most difficult days in his many leadership roles at the New York Times. Uh, then we'll open up the, the uh, conversation with audience questions for Arthur. I'll come up as we're nearing the end of our time to begin drawing this to a close. Following the Q&A, uh, we invite you to the lobby on this side for a, a dessert reception and book sale. Mike Levine, who passed away in 2007, was an award-winning columnist and executive editor, editor of the Times-Herald Record of Middletown, New York. Mike's colleague from the record, uh, Christopher Mele, uh, published a collection of his best columns titled Words to Repair the World, Stories of Life, Humor, and Everyday Miracles. All proceeds from the book sale uh, benefit the Mike Levine Journalism Education Fund, uh, which supports journalist training. Now in our 12th year, uh, the SUNY New Pulse Distinguished Speaker Series is a signature event for the college. 
uh, connecting students, faculty and staff, alumni, and community members uh, with well-known authors, policy leaders, uh, scientists, media experts, uh, business people, and other luminaries right here on our campus. It supports our strategic goal, the college's strategic goal, uh, to be a cultural and intellectual hub in the region. I want to acknowledge again the, the support of, of the uh, SUNY New Paltz Foundation that, along with the support of many gen generous sponsors, makes the Distinguished Speaker Series possible. Each sponsor is listed in your program, uh, and let's please give a round of applause uh, to all of these sponsors. And now my introductions of our speakers. Uh, first, Arthur O. Salzberger, Jr., uh, 2006 Honorary Doctorate recipient here at SUNY New Paltz. We're pleased to welcome uh, Arthur to campus uh, this evening, uh, again awarded an honorary doctorate in 2006. Arthur served as publisher of the New York Times from 1992 to 2017. Uh, in 25 years at the helm, he transformed the Times uh, into an international digital first uh, news organization with a global audience of more than 130 million people uh, and a uh, and five million dollars paid uh, five million paid subscriptions under his leadership the times won 61 pulitzer prizes uh, doubling the paper's uh, total pulitzer count arthur joined the times in 1978 as a correspondent in its washington bureau he moved to New York as a Metro reporter and rose to assistant Metro editor. Uh, through the mid-1980s, he worked in a variety of business departments, uh, including advertising, production, and corporate planning. In 1987, Arthur was named assistant publisher and a year later, uh, deputy publisher overseeing the news and business departments. Uh, Sulzberger Jr. is a member of the board of directors of the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Uh, and more locally, he and I have the pleasure of serving together on the Mohunk uh, Preserve Board of Directors. Before coming to the Times, Arthur was a reporter with the Raleigh, North Carolina Times. Uh, he speaks proudly about this important launch of his career. Uh, he subsequently was a London correspondent for the Associated Press, and Arthur is a graduate of Tufts University. Now, Jim Ottaway, Jr., um, Jim is a retired journalist, newspaper executive, philanthropist, and long-term friend uh, of SUNY New Paltz, and the recipient of a 2018 honorary doctorate here at SUNY New Paltz. As the former chair and CEO of Ottaway Newspapers, uh, which became the community newspaper subsidiary of Dow Jones, uh, Ottaway carried on the legacy of his, of his father, James H. Ottaway Jr., Sen James H. Ottaway Sr., overseeing 20 daily newspapers across the United States, including the Times-Herald Record. He served as a director of Dow Jones and held uh, positions as senior vice president and pre president of international uh, and magazine divisions. Like Arthur, uh, Jim uh, acknowledges the profound influence on his journalistic career of his early work as a reporter. In 2000, uh, Jim and his wife Mary, a 1970 uh, New Paltz alum, established the college's uh, first and only endowed professorship uh, in journalism named in honor of Jim's late father. For nearly two decades, the James H. Ottaway Senior Visiting Professorship uh, has brought a visiting professor to campus each spring semester, and hundreds and hundreds of our students uh, have had opportunities to work alongside Pulitzer, Emmy, and Peabody award-winning journalists. Jim is a graduate of Yale University, and was recognized uh, again uh, at SUNY New Paltz with an honorary doctorate. 
Before I turn the podium over to our speakers, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that the land that we're on here today is the traditional territory of the people of the Muncie, the Sopas, and Lenape tribes. And I do so as a way of respecting and creating awareness of this piece of our history. So with that, please join me in welcoming uh, Arthur o o Salzberger and James H. Ottaway, Jr. And Arthur will speak first. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Don, for that very warm introduction and for your tireless work on behalf of SUNY New Paltz. This college has benefited tremendously from your leadership over the years, and so has the Mohonk Preserve, at which, as he noted, we are both uh, service members of their board of directors. And I want to thank Jim Ottaway for everything he's done for New Paltz and for the news profession. Jim? Both are better off because of his commitment and dedication through the years. I should note that Jim and I share a few things in common, um, despite one important difference. He's dedicated his retirement to the studying of Greek, Greece. I, on the other hand, plan to spend my retirement hiking and climbing in the guts. <laughs> But truth is, Jim and I, is, uh, both of us are so passionate about outdoor conservation and recreation. That's something we absolutely share together. And that's not where the similarities end. We both grew up in news families. We both started as journalists and gradually worked our way up to the executive suite. He had Ottawa Newspapers and Dow Jones and I at the uh, New York Times. We both also cared deeply, deeply about journalism which is what, what I've been invited to, to talk about tonight. Truth, trust, and the future of journalism, to be exact. And I want to say thank you all for being here for this conversation. I suspect the grouping of these topics isn't a happy accident. Truth, after all, builds trust. And journalism cannot survive without the trust of its readers, which it earns every day through its dogged pursuit of the truth. Yet we live in a time when all three, truth, trust, and journalism, are under great and growing pressure, threatening the health of our democracy and shaking the very foundation of a free and informed society. Free and informed. I stress the latter because attention is more often paid to the former, which is to say the freedoms we enjoy as Americans and understandably so. Those freedoms are at the heart of our noble experiment in self-government, enshrined in our Constitution under such rights as freedom of speech, the freedom to peacefully assemble, and yes, freedom of the press. But for all the talk about the vital role a free society, a free society plays in a vibrant democracy, I worry we don't say enough about the value of an equally informed society one bound by common facts and common purpose, united by shared truths and by shared responsibilities. I also fear we've taken for granted one of the single greatest tools we have as citizens to keep society informed, a free and independent press. 
Now, I realize this may sound self-serving coming from the former publisher and current chairman of the New York Times, a company whose mission is to seek the truth and help people understand the world. As a former journalist, I commend your skepticism. <laughs> but you don't have to take it from me. Our country's leaders, dating back to our founders, have long understood that a free press is vital to a society and citizenry that is free and informed. Above all, a free press provides us with the facts and information we need to elect our leaders and to hold them to account. It directs our attention to matters of deep public interest and digs beneath conventional wisdom to unearth stories that would otherwise go untold. It broadens our perspectives, strengthens our bonds of common understanding, and helps us make sense of a world that, as the ongoing virus epidemic would indicate, grows more complex and more connected by the day. It's also under tremendous strain. Over the last two decades, the press, and in particular print, newspapers, and magazines, has faced considerable and compounding challenges. Advertising, which long supported the business model, has dried up. The result is a news profession in unbelievable distress. Just consider, in the lifetime of the students of SUNY New Paltz, one quarter of print newspapers have closed their doors. One quarter. And more than half of all journalists' jobs have been lost. Meanwhile, technology platforms like Google and Facebook have made it easier than ever for people to access news and information while making it harder for news organizations to form the relationships necessary to build the trust and long-term loyalty with its readers. As a result, what is news and where it comes from has become increasingly unclear, paving the way for bad actors to unleash a flood of misinformation designed to sow doubt and distrust. And that appears to be working. According to the nonprofit Knight Foundation, 62% of Americans believe the news they encounter on television, newspapers, radio, and social media is biased. 44% believe it's inaccurate. And trust isn't only cratering, it's splintering, it's splintering, sorry, along partisan lines. 80% of Republicans prefer to get their news from President Trump than from news media. And a majority believe the news media is best described as the enemy of the people rather than an important part of democracy. At a time when information is more widely available than ever, people and societies are finding it harder to access information they trust. I wish I could say that things are getting better, but slowly but surely, and that slowly but surely trust is rebounding, and that the news industry is on the mend. But I can't. At least not yet. With the exception of a few bright spots, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post among them, trends and the truth suggest otherwise. To which some might respond with blank stares or shrugged shoulders as to say, so what? For those of us 
who care deeply about the future of journalism? This could be a frustrating question to hear, but it's a fair question to ask. After all, most people don't earn a living reading or reporting on the news. We've t- taken for granted the public's understanding of how journalism works and why it matters, and we haven't fully explained what is lost from the decline of a free and independent press. What makes the task especially difficult is that the explanation lies primarily in what we can't or don't see. The elected officials who go unchallenged. The public hearing that goes unattended. The voice that gets silenced. The story that goes untold. In other words, the society that goes uninformed. So, what can we do about it? Well, we can start by making sure people know what really is at stake. Rather than talking in general terms about the importance of a free and independent press, we need to begin to provide concrete examples of what that actually means. For example, we need to talk about how the free press keeps tabs on how your tax dollars are spent, about how the free press makes sure we know whether the water we drink or the air we breathe is safe, about how the free press helps us understand climate change's real impact and the steps we can take to slow its effects. As Yale historian Timothy Schneider once said, reporters make something. They make the factual world, the world we can agree upon, the world that is solid enough to stand on. I'd like to take it a step further to say a free press provides the baseline of facts from which the most important decisions from war and peace to who you support for mayor or president are made. Once we've convinced people that a free and independent press is worth supporting, we need to encourage them to find news organizations they can trust so they can enable the expensive work of reporting by buying a subscription. And yes, that goes for everyone in this room. My ask for you is to support journalism, whether it's the New York Times or the New Paltz Times, the Poughkeepsie Journal, the Middletown Record. Local news in particular is under more stress than any other part of the news ecosystem. It's our critic, and it's also critical to our safety, our security, and knowledge of our communities. News organizations, for their part, need to have something valuable to offer. It's not enough to simply aggregate or comment on the news. To borrow a line from the current publisher of the Times, my son, A.G. Salzberger, the world has enough podcasts, enough videos, enough tweets, enough hot takes to last us through the apocalypse. <laughs> but the world will always need more quality, deeply reported journalism. Indeed, it's the stuff upon which a vibrant democracy and a free and informed society depends. Because as Thomas Jefferson, one of our nation's founders and fiercest advocates for a free press, put it more than 200 years ago, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. So thank you. And now we'll move to the questions. Thank you all.
So that was the warm-up. <laughs>
1978 as reported in the Washington Bureau, I'm going to say that roughly 85% of the revenue of the New York Times came from print advertising. This is before Al Gore invented the Internet. <laughs> and print advertising was declining. And as we moved to a digital model, and we saw digital advertising grow, that again got hit. And what we realized is that the formula was no longer going to survive. The print, we could not survive on the advertising formula alone. And that's when we made that rather dramatic shift to moving to a digital pay model, which, as many people said, was going to destroy the New York Times. In truth now, the majority of our revenue comes from circulation. That's print and digital. And our ability to grow nationally and then internationally and to begin to bring in the 5 million-plus print and digital subscribers we have mm-hmm. has reinforced the business has reinforced the enterprise and that new business model is what is actually not only sustaining but growing mm-hmm. and that has allowed us to invest in our journalism even more so today for example we have 1700 journalists editors reporters um, i mean so many different roles now and mm-hmm. that's more than ever in our history And now the connection to our readers and the business model is so aligned. Because what is true is that our readers are coming to us and they're subscribing and they're paying because of the quality of the journalism and the integrity of the news report. And as we continue to grow that, we will continue to grow our circulation. And that shift in the business model is what has pulled us out. So you're our new media columnist. (laughs) <laughs> ben Smith, yes. uh, Monday this week, uh, wrote his uh, first column in which he said, The rise of the times from wounded giant to reigning colossus has been as breathtaking as that of any startup. So I think we would all be interested to know, what were some of the major uh, changes, uh, and new, new, new things you did to bring the times back almost from the dead? What were the key things you did? I think the first key thing was to move from being a a northeast newspaper, which was what it was in the 70s and 80s, and make it and invest in becoming a national newspaper with print sites all around the country. And that expanded our growth and expanded our our base. Um, And then as we made the transition to a digital model, recognizing that at some point print was going to, print has been declining. And to be fair, the print decline is much slower than I expected. It's happening, but it's happening at a much slower rate. Um, But I think we were able to then make that transition to a digital focus that enabled us to reach even further out to the customers, to the readers, to the subscribers, to all of you. And we had to make some painful cuts, especially on the business side. Uh, And there were some on the news side as well, but mostly that was to begin to bring in the next generation of digital journalists that we needed to create the videos, to create the graphic presentations that are now so powerful. 
um, but again, to sustain the core mission of the company and to think long-term. And thank God we didn't think short-term. We weren't thinking so much about the stock price. And uh, I've got to say, um, I have a lot of people to be grateful for in this, but the, the members of the Ox Salzberger family, my family, were remarkable in saying, yes, we have to take the, take the hit to enable it to survive and grow, and they did that. They actually cut the dividend. We cut the dividend to zero at one point. And the family, we got the, all the family members together on the phone, my cousin Michael Golden and I, and they said to a person, yes, you've got to do it. To a person. It was remarkable. And that, thank you. And that, that, that sustainable base, that, that base of support was what was so critical. And we're unfortunately not seeing that play out very much in newspapers around the country anymore. That, that was rare. Yes, I know. And beautiful. Good for you. Let's go to the paid subscribers now where you've had this amazing increase. How has the number of paid subscribers to the Times grown since Donald Trump was elected? <laughs> um, well, we call it the Trump bump. Uh, and it's, it's true. We, we did get a rise, and then, you know, it started to decline. The, ri the rate of growth started to decline, and, and now it's picking up because we're now moving in much different fields in terms of our science coverage, our culture coverage, our, uh, you know, so many areas of coverage, including international growth. We're now, we have now paid subscribers in every country in the world. And I cannot wait to find out who in North Korea subscribes to the New York Times. <laughs> I think we can all guess. <laughs> but... Look, the, the Trump bump, it's, it's, you know, look, I like, I, as I've, I've said publicly before, World War II was good for circulation. Was it worth it? You are listening to a special edition of Making Waves on WJFF Public Radio. We are hearing Arthur Ox Salzberger, the chairman of the New York Times Company, in conversation with James H. Odway, retired senior vice president of Dow Jones and former chairman of Ottawa Newspapers, the publisher of the Hudson Valley Daily Newspaper, the Times-Herald Record. The presentation happened March 4th at the State University of New York at New Paltz, a part of, this, of the Distinguished Speaker Series at the university. All right. Okay. But uh, go to the numbers. When, when he was elected, what was your Ooh. subscription base? I don't have that in my head. Honestly, it's almost doubled, hasn't it, it? No, it hasn't almost doubled, but it has gone dramatically. I mean, we're at uh, four, what are we at? Four point, um, four point two or so. Um, online. Online, digital subscribers, yeah. yeah. And the reason it's grown so dramatically, though, is really uh, not just about the Donald. The, the, let's face it, there's a great news story there, and people are, are intrigued by that, so that's fair. Mm -hmm. But also by our increasing push to grow internationally. Uh -huh. And to see, you know, and, and to really establish bases. So let me tell you what it's like. I mean, when, I, when you and I were reporters back in the good old days with typewriters, remember? <laughs> so we'd be given a story. We'd do our reporting, get back to the office. We'd type out the story. 
we'd hand it to our um, editors, and they'd give us their feedback. We'd redo that, then we'd hand it back, and then it would go from the, the, the assignment editor to the copy editor, and the copy editors would check it all out, and we would, meanwhile, go to the bar. <laughs> right? And it was a great job, trust me. <laughs> well, now it's, it's relentless. It's 24-7, because you, you, we're never asleep, because it's always digital change, uh, you know, meaning you have to update the story every hour, every two hours, whenever something new happens. So just to give you a sense of what that means for the New York Times, we now have three major hubs of editors and journalists. New York, Hong Kong, London. When New York starts to go to sleep, Hong Kong is waking up, and all the decisions now move to the Hong Kong editors mm. and the bureau chiefs there and the, and, and the reporters to keep updating the story as necessary or to deal with breaking news wherever it happens in the world. If there's a major earthquake, wherever it happens, if it's happening at 2 o'clock in the morning our time, Hong Kong's on it. When Hong Kong starts to fall asleep, London comes up. And now the news decisions are made out of the London hub. And then back to New York. That's the world we're now in. 24-7, you always have to have people there ready to do the reporting, ready to do the editing, ready to make the critical decisions about what's going on the web, when, where, how. Mm -hmm. That's a very different world than the one we were in. Now, how does this uh, 5.3 million subscribers compare to your competitors, the Wall Street Journal, Washington yeah. Post? Look, the, the, they're the, doing the same they're, thing. They're doing many, many of the same things, and God bless them. Um, I think we're somewhat equivalent to what the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and maybe the FD are put together. Yeah. So, so we're somewhere about that level above, above them. Yeah. Oh. And by the way, you know, a lot of it has to do with the quality of the investment, the investment <laughs> in our journalism, the quality of the journalism, the sense that people trust us, the sense that we are prepared to invest enormously in stories. You know, the, the stories on the, uh, the tax, uh, on the Trump taxes, mm. took three of our best journalists, what, a year and a half, I believe, to pull that story together. The Harvey Weinstein story took two of our most talented journalists six months at least. I mean, we really have to invest in this. But people recognize that, and that's why they come to us. And that's the joy of, the, of where we are. So, I, I cite those numbers because the, uh, this, you're, you're a columnist on media now. Ben Smith, in his article mm -hmm. Monday, said you have so far exceeded what the other... <coughs> <laughs> what your competitors <coughs> have done that you're getting all the best talent? We are. You just hired the editor of BuzzFeed to mm -hmm. be this new columnist. Yeah. yeah. This is a. And he started amazing. his column by noting that he tried to hire my son for BuzzFeed. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no, AG decided to stay at the Times. <laughs> you, you spoke about the numbers of staff a, a while ago. Could you just give us. Uh, briefly, when, as you said, uh, print newspapers and, and online sites even around, around the U.S. Mm -hmm. have been reducing staff while you have been increasing staff, mm -hmm. what, what, what are they actually? What is your, what is your 
total number of reporters now in the news? Of actual reporters, I'm, I don't have that number in my head. I apologize. Because remember, it's, we, have more, we have more people in our newsroom who can code than any organization. I mean, it's remarkable the needs we have now to have people who can perform tasks that we, you know, we didn't have. We don't have as many copy editors as we used to have. We have much more people in graphics, in visual journalism, in the daily, our podcasts, which 10, 10 million people, right, a monthly, 10 million monthly listeners. How many here listen to the daily? Okay. Oh. For the rest of you. It is remarkable. It opens the door to what's happening in the institution in a way that is just stunning because he really does talk to our journalists about how they delved into the stories. It gives you insights, behind-the-curtain insights into the, into the quality of the journalism. And, it's, um, and he holds us accountable. When we make mistakes, there, he's on it, as he should be, because we do make mistakes, and our job as is to make sure we own our mistakes and make sure we're honest with you that we have made an error and this is what happened. And that's our commitment. Good. And you see that in the daily and, uh, and it's a very engaging, what, 20, 25 minutes generally, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Let's ask you about the, one of the central questions you were talking about. Reporting the facts in the era of fake news. Uh, what new policies and practices have your editors had to adopt fight this uh, tsunami of fake news and disinformation from malicious individual actors on the Internet and from nations like Russia, China, Iran. This well, must be a daily threat. It's a threat to our democracy. I don't think of it as a threat to the top. It's, it's a threat to everybody. It's a threat to all of us. Um, and our job is to, just, is to report it and to cover it. And, yes, we have a standards editor who holds us accountable, and we, in fact, we have now, I think, more than, I think more than tripled his staff. Because one of the things we recognize is it's not just what we report in the paper or what we put up online, but if a journalist is tweeting something, you know, we have to make sure that it's within the, the, the construct of our agreement with our, with our, with, with our, with the public about what you, how far can a journalist go in opinion? I mean, if it's Tom Friedman giving his opinion, great. That's his job. But if it's our reporter who's covering City Hall giving her opinion, that's different. And that we have to hold that different standard. Different standard. So we are investing in, in, in that. And, and it is, you know, as we get more and more engaged in social media, that has to, we have to train people. We have to hold them accountable. So we're, we're doing that. Good. Arthur, you've been, you were the publisher for 25 years. Yes. Um, I think we can, all imag- we can all imagine how nice it is to be just chairman. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, now when the president calls, I don't have to pick up the phone. <laughs> My poor son's been in the Oval Office twice. <laughs> so I'd like to ask that question. What? What? Uh, relationship you have with the major actors in the in the world who must call you up regularly to complain or did call you up regularly mm-hmm. to oh, complain. Yeah. Uh, starting with your number one difficulty, uh, Donald Trump, who once said in, to, in an interview with with AG, 
can't you write something nice in my hometown newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> You've and had some occasionally we've written some nice things, but he doesn't focus. The, if it's not on Fox News, he doesn't notice it. Um, you so your question is... Will you tell me once that he came to the Times uh, to talk to your editor? Yeah. And, and he had tried to warn him about something, and he wouldn't want to listen. <laughs> okay. Um, so between the time <laughs> that he was elected but not yet inaugurated in that window. I was working with his then publicity PR person, Hope Hicks, and arranging to have him come to the Times to meet with our journalists for an on-the-record conversation, question Q&A. And you can actually go onto our website, and you'll still see that you can listen to that. It was on the record. I, I woke up that morning, and he had tweeted something along the lines that the New York Times has just changed the rules, I'm no longer going. I got, went to the office, calmed myself down, emailed Hope, said, I just saw the pres Mr. Trump's tweets, he wasn't yet president, uh, you know it's a lie, I know it's a lie, all our colleagues know it's a lie. So he came. And he met with me for one-on-one um, -on -one for 15, 20 minutes, which is perfectly normal, mostly to complain about our coverage. Um, fair enough. Uh, trust me, I've got lots of people who complain about our coverage. Um, and then as we were walking into the uh, boardroom where the meeting was being held, and this is the story you want me to tell, right? Yes. <laughs> I said, Mr. Trump, when we walk into the boardroom, you're going to see many photos on the wall, including signed photos of every president since Teddy Roosevelt. And I look forward to having yours, which we do have now. And I said, but I want to draw your attention to one in particular, not because of the photo, but because of what he wrote. To the New York Times, some read it and like it. Some read it and don't like it. But everybody reads it. Richard M. Nixon. <laughs> I said, that was the last president who took on a free press. Think how it ended for him. Went right over his head. <laughs> Opened the door, came in. New York Times is a jewel, a world jewel. <laughs> This is just before we became the failing New York Times. We were the world jewel New York Times. <laughs> so as a final personal question, could you um, describe uh, two of your worst days as publisher of the New York Times? <laughs> Not best days. You notice that. Worst days. <laughs> no, that, exactly. That comes I'm next. teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Uh, well, by far the worst day was... Um, Oh, God, why am I blocking on his name? Jason. Jason Blair. Jason Blair, this happened many years. We're talking about 2002, three, maybe. Jason Blair was a reporter for the Times who we discovered and should have discovered long, long earlier that he was writing stories that were not true. He was pretending to be in cities and states when he had never left his home in Brooklyn. He was filing. It was just horrifying. And it was it was it was it was brutal. 
It was brutal because it went to the core of the mission. The core of the mission, which is to keep a place you can trust. And it under undercut everything. I mean it was just it was it was just devastating. Howell Reigns was the editor at the time, and at the end, unfortunately, you know, Pete had to leave. But I will give this credit to Howell. When this story came out, he turned to one of our senior editors and he said, I want you to take as many journalists as you need and take as much time as you need. And I want you to cover what happened and what we did wrong and what all these lies were about. And we wrote a story that I think ran for three or four pages. That's right. We were the ones who broke this. And I mean, it really broke. I mean, we really went out and said, here's how bad it was. And to his credit, to Howell's credit, he refused to read the story before it ran because he, he knew it was under his watch. And he, that was a bold decision, but it was, that, was, that was just the... Uh, One of your worst days. That was, that was, that was by far my, my worst day, yeah. Can you think of another really bad day? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can. What, what, what color, would I say? Color, um, color photos, maybe? Uh, oh, yeah, God, color. So, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I have never received more hate mail, ever, as publisher of the time, than when we announced we were moving to color in the printed paper. <laughs> I was inundated by letters saying, you are destroying the New York Times, I will never read it again, I will never... A couple of months later, we come out with the printed paper in color, Oh, that's not so bad. We should never have announced we were moving to color. But it really does go to the, uh, to the one of the human truths. Ch change sucks. Ch change is hard. And, and this was uh, one, of those, one of those moments, yeah. Now for a last question, um, what mm -hmm. were some of your happiest days? A couple of happy days. A couple of happy days. <laughs> There's a, a complicated one that I uh, will share with you all. So, do you, how many of you remember the Unabomber? All right. So the Unabomber was blowing people up, blowing things up. No one knew anything, who this person was. And one day we get a letter at the Times. And he says, I want you to run this as a print advertising advertisement from the Unabomber, full page. He also sends it to Don Graham, who was then the publisher of the Washington Post and a dear friend. And Don and I have known each other, had known each other for years, and uh, we called each other up and we say, okay, we both got this letter. What are we going to do? And we bring in the FBI and we bring in the government and we, and we figure this out and in the end, we make the decision to run the ad in the Washington Post, not the New York Times, because the FBI knew that the Washington Post didn't have as many national outlets, and they had agents staked to every one of them in the hopes that the Unabomber might come in to buy a copy of the printed Washington Post, <laughs> whereas if it run in the New York Times, there were just too many outlets being a national paper. Um, what happened? 
Two days later, somebody looks at the ad and says, oh my God, that's my brother. And that's how they caught the Unabomber. That's how they caught the Unabomber. I sent Don a check for my half of the printed costs of the ad <laughs> with a little note saying, please frame this check. It was a beautiful moment. He cashed it. <laughs> it wasn't big enough. <laughs> anyway, okay, that was one. And the second is the transition to the next generation uh, of leadership of the New York Times, um, honestly, to my son. This is the fifth generation. The family. Yeah. And... There are not many places that can say that they've made a successful transition to the fifth generation of an organization. There's us, and there's the smileys. And I'm looking at you, Nina. (laughs) It's a remarkable moment. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, There was one response to this Ben Smith column. Uh, that ran Monday about about the times and uh, uh, signed by a man named Socrates. This is true. So it was in the comment section of the comments of the story. Arthur assumed immediately it was me. Because he's studying, remember, he's studying Greek. <laughs> and he said, the New York Times is not perfect, but thank God the Ox Sulzberger family has stuck with it through thick and thin for 130 years and presumably helped make America a better place in the process. We should count our lucky stars that the New York Times, with all her warts, exists today. Imagine if the Fox Times was the leading national newspaper. <laughs> so I'd like, uh, I'd like Don to lock the doors. <laughs> and we will go to the general questions now for all of you. Right. And there are people in another room, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, there are questions in the other room as well. But um, by the way, I know many of you are not students, but I just have I mentioned the EDU. Uh, if you have a, if you want to subscribe to the digital edition of the New York Times and you're a student at a college, we have a special deal. I believe it's one dollar a week. All you need is an EDU, right? Yes, give it to your grandchildren. They're not yet in college. <laughs> Okay. But they'll get there. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now, will you take some questions okay. from here? Absolutely. From here. So, who, anyone have questions? Yes, sir. Okay, so the public company model, is it conflicting with the accurate journalism model? When you say public company, you're referring to the New York Times. Right. All right. So we are a public company, obviously. And by the way, our stock price has gone up today. Just wanted to note that. Um, So, yeah, thank you. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's gone up a lot under my son's leadership. Um, Now that I'm gone, it's gone like that. But um, the truth is we are two classes of stock. We have the A shares, which are publicly traded, and all of you can buy. And we have the B shares, which are family controlled, and they're in the family trust. And the B shares are the ones that elect the majority of our board of directors. That's their only thing. They elect the majority of our board of directors, which means that if the company were to come under assault, as it has, that we have a protected, we have a wall. 
And that's what has helped us manage thinking long-term through short and not short-term through, through trauma. Well, can I, I'm sorry, I want to follow up. Why? Two classes? That was the way it was established by my predecessors. That was not my, but it was just, yeah, in the 60s. And that was, they set it, they set it up. My father and his, his generation set it up to protect the integrity of the institution, to ensure that when times got tough, we could think long-term, not short. And it's, and by the way, the, uh, the Washington Post followed the same model, so, the Graham so, family. So did Dow Jones. So did who? Dow Jones. So did Dow Jones. Yeah. All right. Let, no, let's, no, no, no. <laughs> let, let's, let's open the door for some other questions, yeah. please. Please. Yes. Go ahead. Um, look. Um, good question. Thank you for that. Um, so let's agree that we don't have as many women at the moment, women opinion writers, um, as men. I'm not sure how many the actual number is. Uh, but let's also agree that Maureen Dowd counts for three guys. <laughs> um, but the fact, the truth is, uh, all right, uh, to be serious now, I, we are uh, heavily investing in, the, in not only making sure women are moving up the rank, uh, and, for example, our deputy editorial page editor is a woman. We have women leading some of our major desks and, and move, you know. Uh, but we want to increase the number, the greater diversity, not just race, a uh, sex, but race and ethnicity. And uh, it's a major commitment that my son has, underta has undertaken. Now, you know, we have had women as an executive editor. We've had a woman as a CEO of our company. Um, so we do, you know, I think we do have, it's not a problem that's been solved, but it's something we've invested in. And we have to continue to and hold ourselves accountable to that. Hey, could you say something about recent effort to get uh, more letters to the editor? Uh, remind me. Well, <laughs> they have a, he a knows this stuff better than I do sometimes. There's a program at the Times to get more women writing letters to the editor to have almost equal, equal numbers, male and female. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's Thank very you. around. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Next. <laughs> well, okay, the question was, the world needs a little more humor. Why can't we put the comics back in the paper? First of all... We never had comics in the paper, to be fair, so it's not putting them back. But I've got to tell you that it was noted earlier that we've won a number of Pulitzer Prizes under my watch. And, you know, some of them were incredibly powerful and shocking and, and painful. We actually won a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning about two years ago. It shocked the shit out of me. <laughs> But I was embrace, I embrace it. But we are trying to work it in, not cartoon cartoons, but, you know, just into the look and feel of things. And, uh, but no, I don't think we're going to... I mean, you need more cartoons right now in this political environment? <laughs> uh, sorry, there was somebody right back here who was... Uh, yes, sir, you. Um, this has been noted in that column that perhaps we might, we might acquire this podcast company called Serial. Um, again, I'm no longer 
in the day job of running the New York Times. I'm chairman of the board, but I'm not an employee anymore. So I, uh, it has yet to get to the board about purchasing it. Um, the deal, there's no deal yet. And I think he made that clear. We're, but the thought is, all right, there are other ways of, of getting our news out. We've seen how well the podcast world has worked. If it's, you know, the daily is our big hit, but there are five, seven other podcasts we do on a regular basis. The argument is one of my favorite. If you haven't heard the argument, please up, take a listen. What's that um, about? It's a, it's more about, a, it's more of opinion and it's, uh, it's conservative uh, and, and more liberal arguing and uh, just about discussions about issues that come up. Um, and the thought, I think, is just can we expand in that business? But uh, as, as we know, it's not a deal that's been signed, sealed, or delivered, so I, I can't talk more about it yet. I, I have several questions here from the other room. All right. Can I answer these? Uh, this is one I'm going to depoliticize a bit. Good luck. No, I think I could do this. <laughs> uh, do you feel journalism still matters? Folks who need the truth aren't reading the Times, right? And first of all, I don't feel journalism still matters. I know journalism still matters. <laughs> and the growth in the readership of the New York Times has been on, on, honestly stunning. That we now have five million over 5 million paid subscribers, print and digital, is remarkable. I mean, there's nothing like that in our history. Um, and it's continuing to grow. And we've been clear that we are planning to grow internationally. So we have more paid subscribers than ever imaginable, and it's growing. And I think the opposite. I think people clearly recognize the value of the quality of the journalism. And again, I want to reinforce that that business model has been critical to our success and our survival. But we have to make, embrace it in a more local way. We have to embrace it locally as well. Because we need local... The New York Times is not going to be covering mayor races in the, the towns and the cities around us here right now. But we need local journalism to do that, to hold power to account. And that means we need to support them. And there was a number I recently came across. My apologies. I wrote this down. 15 million people right now pay for news. 15. 124 million pay for Spotify. 167 million pay for Netflix. We have to make people understand that the value of journalism is the critical nature of journalism to our democracy is worth paying for. And that's, that's, that's something we just have to embrace. And that about does it for this special edition of Making Waves. We've been listening to Arthur Ox Salzberger, Jr., chairman of the New York Times Company, in conversation with James H. Ottaway, Jr., retired director and senior vice president of Jow Jones. The presentation happened March 4th at SUNY New Paltz. Making Waves thanks SUNY New Paltz, Mr. Salzberger and Mr. Ottaway for permission to record and air their conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Making Waves here on WJFF Public Radio. WJFF, Jeffersonville, New York.
W233AH Monticello. Bernstein conducts Bernstein next time on the New York Philharmonic this week. This is Alec Baldwin. Please join me as we present a Bernstein retrospective featuring the world premiere recording of the Chichester Psalms. We'll also hear the Symphony No. 3 and Suites 1 and 2 from the Dybbuk. <laughs> 